especially from churches with histories like our church has. It says this in verse 3, he, that is this servant that we find out later is the Messiah Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. In churches like High Point that are in the sort of conservative Baptist tradition, which is where this non-denominational church came from, we focus a lot on um, the fundamental centrality of forgiveness of sins as the fundamental building block of salvation. And, and on one level, that's perfectly correct. Nobody comes to God without being forgiven, without being justified. Um, and yet when you look at passages like this, one of the things that you also see in here is um, in that work Jesus did, he was also identifying with both our sicknesses and our infirmities and also the way people feel uncomfortable with us in our pain, sicknesses, and infirmities, right? People were not comfortable with Jesus, and they weren't comfortable with him not just because he told the truth, but they also weren't comfortable with him because of what happened to him. Jesus allowed himself to experience suffering and to walk through suffering and affliction, and because of that, because he was, as people thought, stricken by God and under his curse, because it says in the Old Testament, anybody hung on a tree was under God's curse, he was, he was the kind of person you couldn't, you didn't know how to relate to. You didn't know what to do with them. And I, I think that when people suffer the kind of infirmities um, that are profound, which include physical infirmities, and they move through these set of infirmities that we generally refer to as mental health, that um, both of these things are important to remember. The first is, is that Jesus carries in his life, death, and resurrection our not just our sin, but our suffering. And by his work, we are not just forgiven, but healed. And whenever we separate these two, we start preaching a gospel only for some people. Does that make sense? And so um, the world is full not just of sin and therefore guilt and shame that has to be alleviated by forgiveness and justification and confession, but the world is also full of pain, weakness, wretchedness, failure, generational sin, right? And people for whom that is their most acute feeling need also, in addition to forgiveness, the message of that it's by Christ's suffering we are not just saved, that is, forgiven, but saved, that is, healed. Does that make sense? And that healing is holistic to the entire human person. It, it includes diseases, but it also includes mental suffering. In the New Testament, Virtually all of the people that are obviously mentally ill that Jesus saves, the Bible says that they're demon-possessed. And I am not going to tell you that, like, that was like an, like an ancient way of referring to mental illness. I think that when Jesus did most of his healing miracles, he healed the superlative of a condition. So he raised the dead. He healed people who were paralyzed, right? We don't have a lot of—like, there's one place where, a, a, like, a Peter's mother has, like, a fever and he heals her. That word in Greek can also refer to sicknesses like malaria that can kill you or like COVID that could kill an older person, right? And so even that may not just be healing of a fever, right? That, and so when Jesus heals a demon-possessed person, he's, dealing some, he's healing somebody who is demon-possessed. But I think we should also see demon possession as the human superlative of mental illness. 
Like, what is a worse form of mental illness than mental illness that has gotten to the point of demon possession? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if I wanted to show you that I had authority over mental illness, and I was the Messiah, and I was going to do a miracle, right, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just heal somebody of their anxiety that the Bucks aren't going to win in game six. Do you understand? I would go find somebody, like, demonically possessed, mumbling under their breath at passersby who is homeless, who has, you know, like, toenails out to here, and I would heal that guy. And by doing so, I would say, I am Lord over all of the internal damage, sickness, brokenness, lostness, enslavedness that happens inside the human person. And you will be free. Right? And so I don't need to demythologize the healing of demon-possessed people in the New Testament to say that Jesus Christ is king over mental illness. Everything in human creation, in creation and under the curse, is something for which King Jesus has declared, this is mine, this belongs to me. If it's part of good creation, it is what he will renew, and he will keep for himself an eternity. And if it is part of the curse, he will destroy it and throw it ultimately in the lake of fire when he brings forth human glorification in the end. And so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about this relative to our Christian faith today. Um, I'm, I'm going to admit to you straightforwardly, though I'm going to use these, this phrase. I actually don't like the phrase mental health. It, to me, that phrase sounds like, the, like faith community. It's like, it's kind of descriptive, but it clumps together a bunch of things under one banner that are very different, right? Like, I'm part of the, like, Pastor Nick, he's part of the faith community. And I'm sitting next to an imam and the leader of the Sikh, Sikh temple and so on. It's like, we are all part of the faith community. There is a general sense in which we all have faith in something transcendental. And so we're all part of this vague faith community. But there's ways in which we're very different from each other. And one of the reasons I don't like the phrase mental health is because it clumps together hundreds of different phenomena, if not thousands, that are, all can fall under mental health that are extremely different human phenomena, right? But because this is the phrase everybody uses, I'm going to like kind of use it today. But I want you to know, I'm, if you're uncomfortable with it, so am I, okay? This is how I'm going to define it for today. A mental health issue, an MHI, is a durable, debilitating state of consciousness that profoundly inhibits good human pursuits. It is a durable, debilitating state of consciousness that profoundly inhibits good human pursuits. Does that make sense? Obviously, there's like 19 different definitions you could give for that, but that's what I'm going to use today, okay? I think the first thing is to remember as the church of Jesus Christ that especially churches like ours with our kind of church history, we need to recapture, believe in, and see in the Bible when it's there— a biblical doctrine of affliction and infirmity, right? There's this saying that America, especially in the American church, that we shoot our wounded, right? Because we're going to keep moving forward. I can't deal with you and your problems, right? And one of the things I've said is, is that as High Point Church, if it develops, it's not just going to grow and have more Christians, and it's not just going to have more families and more babies and grow generationally. One of the things that should happen is it should grow more multi-ethnically, right? Because it should be a church for all kinds of people, but it, but those of you who've been here long enough, you know that I've said also, but it also has to be for people who are hurting, and also for people who, like, don't have as much education, and people who are struggling with the complexities of modern life, and people who, like, etc. And what I found as I've been a pastor is that for a lot of churches like ours, where, like, a lot of people are well-educated, and they look good, and, like, we wear button-down shirts and so on, like, people get—people who are really hurting— they don't stay very long. 
because we, we tend to think of them as like, they're like baggage, right? Like, because you're looking for people in your life that add more than they take away, aren't you? Right, because we're all in this big competition for marginal gains in the middle class. And because we're all fighting really hard for it, right, we need people who are allies. We need people who bring more to the relationship than they take from it, you know? We need productive people in our lives, right? And other people are what? Say it with me. Toxic, right? And we shouldn't have toxic people in your life because toxic people are poisonous, right? Do you see how atheistic that is? How idolatrous it is? How, how literally antichrist it is? It's a lie from the pit of hell itself. It is the most Jesus-rejecting heart space a human being can possibly be in, right? And our culture, for lots of reasons I'm not going to go into right now, produces it powerfully. And yet, as you read through the Bible, the Bible is full of suffering, affliction, hurt, and God constantly saying that people who care about people who are in affliction, who are hurting, who need you to sit with them and stay up with them all night, that that is when you show you care about and fear your maker. Right? Secondly is, um, sometimes people believe that there, like, just is no mental health issues in the Bible. That no, there's, like, the Bible knows nothing of this category, and so it's an anti-Christian ideology. And I'll get to psychology having a bunch of anti-Christian ideologies in it, because there's no denying that. However, um, it's important to recognize that, like, a lot of stuff we call mental health issues are just described it differently in the Bible, and they're, they're present. Like, it's—I think it's pretty likely Saul had some kind of mental illness, right? He was—like, there's no explaining his back-and-forth behavior, and, G, and David was actually brought in to do, like, music therapy with the guy, right? Now, it says explicitly in Samuel that, like, an evil spirit at one point comes to torment him, but he was always kind of back-and-forth and tormented before that, right? Which, which also leads to the idea that demon possession can sometimes be an advanced form of mental—like, if, if this is happening in somebody and they're not experiencing redemption, that you could get darker and more broken in your experience of life such that it can then lead to something like demon possession. Right? Um, David, there's, there's, no, there's no doubting there's depression in the Bible. Right? Like, Naomi basically can do nothing. Like, she comes back with Ruth, and she's, like, at home, and she, she's just, like, she's there. She gives, she gives, like, Ruth some, like, looking good, um, like, in how to, how to navigate um, Israel, Israeli culture or, or Jewish culture stuff, but she doesn't really do anything except for when Ruth finally has a baby, and that baby gets put on Ruth's—or Naomi's lap at the end of the book. Naomi comes alive again. And the book—it's funny, the book of Ruth is kind of, in a lot of ways, it's bookended by Naomi. Naomi losing everything, falling into depression, and then God doing something and putting a baby on her lap when she lost her sons and lost her hope of grandchildren and lost her hope of a name and lost her hope of a future in her old age, that this Moabite woman who she thought was infertile because she was married to one of her sons for like seven or eight years and didn't have a child— Mary's Boaz has a child, and this child is put on her lap, and her depression is, is helped, and she comes alive again. Right? And you can go all through, all the way to Nebuchadnezzar. Like, he's the great, he's the king of kings in the world, and he succumbs to this, like, he, like, he, he, like, his hair grows like feathers as he, like, crawls around like a beast. The psychological term for it now is, like, cancerpsy. Like, you think you become an animal. And scripture says that God used this mental illness in Nebuchadnezzar's life to humble him. Yeah, you're going to live as an animal for seven years, and then I'm going to heal you, and then you're going to realize you're not the king of kings. But 
God intentionally, non-demonically, afflicts this king with a particular human affliction that fit his pride in his own providence. It's kind of interesting. Um, one of the reasons why I think this is important is that um, Christians need to recognize that there is not language parity between modern psychological thinking and pursuits and investigation and the Bible. All right, scripture doesn't use scientific jargon and couldn't have, right? I mean, think about how unhelpful it would have been if um, God would have put modern technical psychological jargon in the revelation of the scriptures. It would have been completely incomprehensible for most of the centuries in which the Bible was read, right? It's, it's kind of incomprehensible now to most people, right? Like, even now, we know the sun doesn't rise and set. We know that, like, the earth is spinning, and it's, like, our perspective, and we're like— we, but we, we still don't say, well, the earth seems to have spun 300—like, we don't—we still say rise and set, because the colloquial way of understanding something is still more effective, more helpful, and more simple for the vast majority of people. And so Scripture uses—it doesn't use scientific jargon, but it also doesn't include historic misunderstandings of mental health either. Right? Like, there's all kinds of weird ancient beliefs about mental health that just didn't make it into the Bible. For example, I'm told Aristotle believed that, the, that we thought with our heart, the organ that is our heart, and that the brain was kind of like a primitive radiator that displaced unnecessary heat in the human person, right? That could have easily made it into the Bible. Like, you, like any, all kinds of like weird scientific explanations could have made their way into the Bible, but the Bible actually has very little science in it. Like, it has enough to be like, hey, if science gets over here, that's probably wrong, right? But it doesn't say, here is the science of psychology, right? Instead of what the Bible does, is it uses um, a lot of different words to talk about our inner life in a way that is not technical. So one of the ways people get really confused is they're like, they think they know exactly what the Bible refers to when it says soul, and exactly what the Bible refers to when the, Bi when the Bible says spirit. I've heard people like argue with me about like, listen, we're, we're three parts. We're, bi we're mind, soul, and spirit. We're not, you know, like mind and soul, and soul isn't spirit, spirit isn't soul, and like they get these like really technical arguments about it. I'm like, listen, I'm glad you're passionate about this, and I don't know what Christian teacher you've listened to, but the Bible actually uses lots of interior words for all kinds of different interior phenomena inside of us, like heart, mind, soul, right? It uses the word spirit. It uses the word liver, stomach, or bowels for like when you feel something really deeply. It's like, I feel it in my bowels, you know, like your liver being like, I feel that deeply, right? Like, and like, we don't say that here, but in like ancient Near East cultures, that was pretty normal. Like, you could say this is in my heart, but you could be like, I feel this in my liver. And that meant like, kind of like I feel it in my guts. You know what I mean? We still say that sometimes, right? And then like your conscience, like your moral sense. In the New Testament, there's this word suke, which means kind of like life, person, self. That is like your sense of your internal identity. There's the flesh, the part of your inner life that doesn't want to obey God and wants to fight him, indwelling sin. There's your will, like what you choose to do and how you set your mind about what you're going to fight and what you're going to support and how you're going to be, right? And there's also like, there's a number of places that says the little inside man is what it says in Greek. It's like the inside man. You're like, what does the inside man mean? Is that like a really good post player in the NBA? Like, but it just means like, the per like there's this inner person you think is you that you kind of identify with as the real me on the inside, because you got like 16 voices bouncing around your head, but you have this sense of like what your inner man or inner person is, right? And that's used a number of times in the Testament. And then there's conviction, there's faith. All these are inner states, inner states of human consciousness. There is no like, well, it's these three words that are the inner human being. That's not how the Bible lays it out. 
There's tons of different words to get at how God relates to all these different internal phenomena of human consciousness, right? And the things that really are part of our human consciousness, like our spiritual self, right? What the Bible calls our soul, which is probably like an amalgamation of a number of these words, and so on. Does that make sense? And it doesn't make clear the interrelationship between the two. For example, in Hebrews 4, it says that there's something about the Word of God that it is such a sharp, double-edged sword that it can divide between the dividing line between soul and spirit, which seems to presume that soul and spirit can be talked about as different things, but that they are so profoundly united that you need something as razor spiritually sharp as the Word of God itself to even have any sense of how they could even be differentiated at all. Which tells me we should be careful about how we speculate about the inner life, but take each of these metaphors and descriptions of the phenomenon of inner life and allow them to be what they're meant to be in the biblical passages to teach us how to believe and relate to Christ and to apply the scriptures. And then allow ourselves to go through the mental process to the extent that we're interested to like take some of the like the scientific jargon of psychology and be like, are there ways in which this general language of scripture relates to this technical language of psychology? And is there a helpful way to relate these two? Should I keep them separate? But that's a task of wisdom we're going to have to discern our way through. Does that make sense? And whether you look at the scriptures themselves or whether you look at um, the field of psychology today, both groups are very clear that there are different sources of debilitating states of consciousness. You remember I said before I didn't like the phrase mental health? And the reason I didn't like the phrase mental health is because it clumped together things that were very different. Right? Um, for example, um, within what we might call mental, mental um, health issues are things that are like just straightforwardly physical, right? I don't do counseling with women with postpartum depression first. Like, it, it, like if, if a woman comes to me depressed and she's had a baby like four months ago and she doesn't have a history of depression and she's like, I just feel like God is so absent. I don't go, well, you should pray more. I'm like, okay, you need to go see your doctor right away because you may have a like hormonal condition that is helping to cause this thing. And you do that, then come back, and then we'll talk about the mind and the soul and how you engage with God in this affliction that you're suffering. But I'm not going to pretend, like my, my own mother, for example, when I was in my um, kind of middle years, she had this um, very strong hormonal imbalance that is common among Mediterranean women. And it just like, it just threw her for a crazy loop for years. And it was a, it was a hormonal imbalance, and there wasn't much she could do about it. Does that make sense? And, but also there's temperamental stuff. Like, we're all kind of different. Do you realize that? Like, there's things men and women. The difference between men and women. They're like, should we have as much empathy as women or as much empathy as men? Which is right, right? Because the, the levels are not the same in terms of distributions. Does that make sense? And the thing is that there are temperamental differences based on our experiences of the world. Also, some of us just have more, like, analytical attitudes about things. Others are, like, more feelers. There's different kinds of personalities. And there, all these temperamental differences create different relationships, and some of these temperaments are more prone to certain mental illnesses. Like, I'm high, super high in what's called conscientiousness, which means I am much more likely to become obsessive about something than somebody who's, like, high in, like, inspirational, like, stuff in their character, where they're, like, they're, they're much more prone to go after fads and be deceived by stupid, vacuous things. And those differences that will lead us into lies and brokennesses that will ultimately lead to ends of mental illnesses in different directions are partly related to our temperamental nature given us by God that we have to learn how to inhabit for good rather than slide into where it might take us for evil, right? A third is injury or trauma. 
There are some ways in which the environment around us, through injuring actions, hurt us unto harm, right? Sometimes it's like, it, ha- it can happen at any time in our life. Like, um, you-, you can like witness a car accident, and you can see somebody die, and it can do something really profound to you that you don't understand. Um, a lot of this comes from childhood, because we don't get to coach our child selves about what, what is happening to, happening to us means. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, part of the problem with human development is when we're little kids, we don't have our adult self to say what these things— if people mistreat us, if our parents seem to abandon us, or if they do things that we don't understand, we don't have somebody else to tell us what our feelings mean. And so oftentimes a lot of these traumas, a lot of these things that make it very difficult for us to function come from our early childhood. There's nothing unchristian about that. Because there isn't a book in the Bible about psychoanalysis, doesn't mean that it's like witchcraft to say that there are like things in our early life that may have deeply affected us. Remember, psychology is a science of natural creation. God did not put most of the content of the sciences in the Bible because learning about science is part of the creation mandate that we were supposed to do by investigation, curiosity, and intelligence. God gave us the physical ability, the cognitive ability, and the creative ability to go into the world and investigate it. And so he didn't put most of the dictates of science in the Bible, of any of the sciences, of dietary science, to psychological science, to physical sciences, to nuclear sciences. We are supposed to go, and special revelation keeps us on track by telling us the moral, spiritual, and divine parameters by which we do all this investigating. So we shouldn't expect the Bible to have principles of psychoanalysis in it, even if they're helpful. We should expect to have to discover them and to relate them to what we know from the scriptures about the spiritual and moral and divine truths that they must correlate with within God's creation. Does that make sense? Environmental stuff— is, is, a, is a big example of this, um, that we all exist in a particular environment. And that affects how we are. And sometimes you can be kind of overwhelmed by your environment, or your environment can push you one way or another. For example, there's a lot of us that, that are suffering from like vague issues that could be called mental illness that have to do that, uh, with us living in a news-saturated 24-7 news cycle that actually overloads us with negative information and increases our anxiety in ways we, we, which we don't understand. Um, if you are a, like, teenage girl and you are on Instagram, your mental health is worse than it would be otherwise. It's just a fact. Like, you don't have the ability—human hu- people, and females in this case, do not have the mental cognitive ability to not be negatively affected by social media. In fact, virtually none of us do, right? And that's an environmental thing. If we're—like, we live in a profoundly consumeristic society where we just throw stuff away. Is it any wonder that our society more and more is disconnected from human beings, uses human relationships as objects, and just throws them away if we don't like them? Right? The systems that we're in create these environments that affect how we think and feel in profound ways and can lead to wholesale society-wide mental illnesses like loneliness, the depression that comes from disconnection, and so on. What they call the bowling alone syndrome. Also, delusion and confusion. Sin always leads to delusion and confusion. If you're not rightly connected to reality, if you don't understand the world, and you're not living in it according to wisdom, you're going to do stuff. It's going to go wrong. You're going to wonder why it goes wrong. You're going to be confused about why your life is going the way it is, and it's going to lead you to fear and anger and anxiety, which is going to lead to mental health issues, right? Same thing. There's a lot of mental health issues that are chosen. For example, if you're racked with guilt, because you're married, but you're sleeping with your boss's daughter who's 15 years your junior, and you feel terrible about it, and you're just like, you're being destroyed mentally by it. Like, that's not, that's not like you have a hormone imbalance, right? Like, you chose 
a blameworthy thing to do, and you continually chose it, and you are living in it, and you're supposed to feel terrible. That mental illness, crushing guilt, that's actually a medicine. It's the work of conscience to lead you out of it. And the way to, like, be released from that mental health issue is to repent, confess, and believe. Right? And then, um, seven is virtue deficit. Like, the world is full of sin, brokenness, and hurt. All of us will be emotionally crushed and incapable of functioning if we're not emotionally strong, if we're not strong internally as human beings, if we're not, if we don't grow in godliness and in depth and in maturity and in hope and in the structures of godliness. And so one of the things that leads to mental health issues, certain kinds of mental health issues, or exacerbates them terribly, is when we're just not virtuously developed as human beings. And then everything that hits us, hits us harder, breaks us down more. It's harder to heal from it. And so something that would be like a very workable mental health issue, something that we could cope with okay, becomes utterly devastating, right? And then a, et cetera. I don't know how many other kinds of causes there are, but there's a lot. And in the culture we live in right now, the average psychological counselor doesn't consider themselves an expert at all these and doesn't actually think about all of them. And the same is true of pastors. Pastors actually aren't supposed to be good at all of them. And what you would like to see would be some kind of like good relationship between the two of these. The problem is is that pastors often don't know that much about psychology because we only have to study like 18 subjects because we're generalists. And a lot of counselors, even counselors who are Christians, their integration between the school of psychology that they learn from and actual Christian theology and doctrine is terrible. It is so bad. And so Christian counselors think that they're counseling in a Christian way, and they're not. They don't realize they have all this atheistic and anti-Christian baggage that comes from the field of psychology as it's properly created at this moment. And then there's like this Jesus veneer that's put on top of it, and it feels like Christian counseling them, and there's nothing Christian about it. It is not in conversation with the Bible as it actually teaches. It is not connected to the historic science of soul care. It is not filled with the general overall wisdom of the investigation of the human soul over time throughout the entire history of the church. And relative to what the soul is and the inner life is like and how it's healed in Christian theology relative to the gospel. And so we need—and so I, I'll tell you why I said this in just a minute. So I want to give some takeaways quickly. One is, Christians should expect mental health issues. It should not surprise us. We should expect everybody to have mental health issues. We should be shocked that anybody can be functional. Do you understand? I mean, just read the first three chapters of Romans. I mean, it's like they, humanity turned from God, entered into a delusion— By entering into a delusion, they think they can do anything they want to other people, so they perpetrate all kinds of sins against each other. Then they do it generationally, right? And then harms beget harms beget harms. And then religious people, God gives special revelation to heal us from this. And instead of actually being healed from it, we use it to justify ourselves as we hypocritically attack other people and think that we're better than them, which makes a whole other different kind of cycle of harm. And by the time you get to Romans 3, it's like, Their feet are rushing to do evil. Their throats are open graves. There's no limit to the sin they're willing to do the way. And all sin is unjust perpetration of harm upon others. All of it. And all of it is harming us psychologically. And all of us is harming others psychologically. And all of it is harming everybody sociologically. All at the same time. That is the nature of the curse. Listen to me. 
How is anybody not hospitalized? So, like, this, this idea that, like, Christians would be like, oh, you had to take a depression medication? Like, I'm surprised you eat anything other for dinner than depression medication. Right? Like, I, like listen, I am super disturbed at how many people have to go to counseling and how, how many billions of dollars— it's like $200 billion of antidepressant medication in America right now, every year, one year. 90,000 people died of drug overdoses in the last year. That's up from 80,000. It's more than a 10% increase in one year. That should not surprise us. The idea that, like, therefore the church should be people that are really functional and not weird or broken or hurting is crazy. And, and this does not take away from the victory of Christ. Luke is 100% right. A Christian in good standing is somebody who believes in Jesus and is in the fight. That's basically it. You believe in Jesus, and whatever you're carrying, whatever you're fighting, whatever is destroying you, whatever is keeping you from being who you were meant to be, you're in the fight. You haven't given up, or you're about to start fighting again. <laughs> That's basically all there is. And for some of us, like, we're going to fight our whole lives, and our testimony is not going to be how much healing we demonstrate. Our testimony is going to be that we never gave up. Right? The, the mark of real Christian faith, according to Scripture, is not full holiness. It is growth in holiness, the presence of the real work of the Spirit, so there will be some love right? Do you know dysfunctional people that also love? Because I do, and I hope that works because otherwise I'm going to hell. Do you understand? Like, I am an intermittent creature. Like, I'm dealing with all kinds of just junk that I don't even understand about me, and I'm striving in Christ and by the Spirit to love and to persevere. The presence of love as a mark of holiness and perseverance, not giving up, are the marks of real faith that justif justify our justification is a gift of Christ to unworthy creatures. And so we should never be surprised at this. The second is—sorry, I have like six of these. I need to keep going faster. Okay—is that psychology is a natural science. All science is part of dominion taking, wisdom discovery, and fighting the curse, and yet is subject to human perversion, delusion, and idolatry. Right? We don't stop believing in biological sciences because we've been given terrible dietary information over the years. Right? We just realize that, like, science, like, everything, like, they get stupid ideas in their head, and they, like, go in a certain direction. They think they've discovered everything, and then they say something like it's true, even though it doesn't take in the full picture, or it can't be replicated, and so on. That happens for everything. Listen, I don't know if you know this. This has happened in Christian theology over the years, too, where people have read a passage, and they've said, oh, that must mean this, based on the kind of knowledge I have right now, so therefore it's okay to do X, Y, Z, so let's do that. And like, we don't want people to like never listen to the gospel again because Christians have like gone through the scientific process of exegesis, interpreting the scriptures and applying them as scientifically as possible in theology and gotten it, gotten it totally and catastrophically wrong. We should expect our brothers and sisters in the church and outside of the church in the psychological sciences to do that also. As Christians, we need to be like, so my attitude towards psychology is what I call combative openness. I'm like, uh-uh, uh-uh. Okay, tell me what you're thinking, but I, I probably don't like it at first. Right? Like, I'm, like I have a very—I'm going to test that. Because, like, 
The psychotherapists from Vienna were all atheists. Most of them committed suicide. And, and psychology is still the heirs of that movement. And it is infected with an incredible amount of just atheistic assumptions of everything. It's like there's so much neurological determinism. It, like, it is a mess. And in the social work schools, it is socialistically progressive in the worst possible ways. And I am progressive on a lot of issues. But like my wife is reading some of the like political textbooks for the degree she's going into. And it includes stuff like people, everybody in America has to be freed from the Protestant work ethic. Nobody should have to work. That's, a, that's an oppression. And I'm like, what? I'm not going to go into that. But like there's, but listen, some of the greatest insights of my life and the developments of my spiritual life over the last maybe seven years of my life have come from psychological insights that have helped me so that I could apply the gospel more specifically, not just to my sin, but to the pain and the core needs and what was really going on under that sin so that I could go right there with Jesus and I could be helped and healed in ways I hadn't been helped and healed for 30 years. This month is my 30-year anniversary of being a Christian. And there is stuff that I have not even, didn't even know I had to be healed from to about five years ago. And it was psychology and some of the truths that I believe came out of that investigation of a true natural science that allowed me to connect with some of those things and really grow and be healed more. Um, I, I don't have time for this. It's really funny, but I—sorry. Okay, there is. <laughs> the short answer is, is there's this great article in Slate about um, what is causing all of our, like, anxiety— and, and then in one, in like a big point is like social media and all this like negativity coming in constantly is, is like a huge part of growing mental illness in America. And then at the bottom of the article, it's like, join us on Twitter and Facebook. So I looked at the first like eight things on their Twitter feed and they're all like, master's degrees are scams, COVID's at the Olympics, Delta variant LA is going to kill everyone, my stepsister's going to steal my babies, you can't trust men, my girlfriend is cheating. Like it's like all incredibly negative, like, anxiety-creating stuff, and I'm just like, a little irony there. We can't trust people to not be hypocrites about this. Third is, okay, Jesus cares—okay, I guess there was time. Okay, Jesus cares about our inner, our inner infirmities and weakness of all kinds. Okay, Jesus does not just care about your guilt. He does not just care about your guilt. He cares about your infirmities and your weaknesses. He cares about your struggles and your pain. He cares about all of those things. Yes, he is bringing you to an end, and he, just as he will not allow you to keep your guilt, it must be forgiven and put away in justification, he will not ultimately let, let, ultimately let you keep your pain. But, but just as he is patient with you in understanding what true righteousness is, to reawaken the conscience and lead you to a better moral self and all those kinds of things, and he works with you by his spirit, he's doing the same in all of your pain and hurt and infirmities and mental health issues. And he cares very deeply about it. And he's not done with you because you're not better. You're done with you. As do not confuse your attitude about you to Jesus' attitude about you. Most of you, and I'm talking especially to people under 35, but it's true for everybody. The epidemic of repressed self-hatred in our country right now, especially among girls, but among younger men as well, is destroying the lives of people. And what happens is, is because it's repressed and you don't really believe you hate yourself, you then transfer it without knowing it to the heart of God. And the face of God you see looking out from the Bible, looking out from the preacher, looking out from YouTube, looking out from everything, is that he is so disappointed in you. You are just too much and not enough at the same time. And that is baloney. It is nonsense. It is your deepest pain hijacking the image of God and reflecting it back at you. But it is not true. 
It is a delusion that you don't yet know how to evaporate. He cares about your weaknesses, and, and this is all through the scriptures, but it was, as I said in the beginning of the sermon in Isaiah 53, there's this passage where it's right there with our justification, right? Fourth is God uses people with MHIs, with mental health issues. The fact that you, pro- like almost everybody in this room, by some definition, has mental health issues, right? Everybody's weird, right? And if God didn't use weird people, there'd be no heroes in the Bible, there'd be no Christians, there'd be no churches, there'd be no servants of God of any kind, and God uses people with pasts, with mental health issues, with sins that are still even recurring in their life. God uses very incredibly, not just imperfect, but downright awful people. Do you remember, David wants to build a temple, he's like, He's like, listen, you can't build a temple, David, because you're a murderer. You're a man of blood. He literally there means murderer, not just a guy who had to be a soldier, right? And yet, God uses David for almost everything else. <laughs> like, yes, he literally can't build the, the space that exemplifies and simplifies holiness on earth. But he gets to be the king of God's people, and he leads them into battle, and he saves them from all kinds of things. Like, he's like the, one of the greatest leaders in the history of Israel, and he's a murderer, and he's an adulterer, and he's a man after God's own heart, and he's also crazy. He had a heart of absolute worship and devotion. He did some incredibly selfless things. He received rebukes from people other people would have never listened to, like a woman when he's on a murderous rampage to kill somebody. He's like so godly, and yet he's like not. And God uses this guy. And the reason why that's in the Bible is for you. Do you understand? It's for me. I I will not be here tomorrow if that all gets ripped out of the Bible. Jesus was gracious to give us other spiritual heroes besides himself because we have trouble identifying him with, with him as we should because we think he hates us because we hate ourselves. But even in our self-hatred, sometimes we can see somebody like David be like, oh, I may be, maybe if God uses him, he would love me. When really we're actually meant to see ourselves in Jesus. Okay. Let me say just a couple more things and then we'll be done. Sorry, that felt like the end, didn't it? Because I got to that slide. Three more things really quick. One is by accepting what is helpful from psychological sciences, we can apply the gospel more specifically for healing. One of the reasons why I say don't be so afraid of psychological sciences is that sometimes it's very hard for us to see that the place where we're really hurt, where the Spirit wants to heal us, and where God really wants to work, and we stay stuck like in the sin level or in these generalities. And sometimes when we let psychological insight say, no, this is the thing, it's not that psychology then heals you. It's that like now you know exactly where to plug Jesus into and be like, oh, Jesus has a word to speak to that, to that core need, to that core hurt, to that. And oftentimes the therapies that we use are repetitive rituals, which are the exact same repetitive rituals that are in the Bible. Secondly, or this is the sixth now, like Lou said, you have to fight. It is through many trials, the Apostle Paul said, we will enter the kingdom of God. You have to fight. You have to fight. And if, you're, and if your spouse is the one fighting, you're supposed to be their ally in the fighting. And this is one of the reasons why belief in devils and Satan is so um, useful, not just true. Because by understanding that there is a demonic influence in all of our failures and sins, it gives you somebody to hate besides the person you're supposed to love. Do you understand? There's like a, there's like a cathartic, psychologically helpful part of believing in devils. Because when my kid, like, I'm having trouble and they're just feeling— like, choke them. 
I like, if I believe in my Christian theology that there's, there's a demonic influence on me and one on her, I can, or him, I cannot judge my kid. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking about a particular kid. Um, I know that there's an influence on me, my flesh and its selfishness, me being tempted in the wrong way. And so I need to be less hypocritical. And I need to stop and try to see her or him as a person and an other and not just a tool I need to get to do what I want, but also I recognize that, like, not all of the miswill in her or him is just them. They're struggling with the flesh and indwelling sin that they didn't want, and they're struggling with temptation and demonic influence that they don't want, and I have to be, find a way to be their ally in the midst of that. And, like, you sometimes you need to believe that for your kids and your spouse and your neighbor and your small group mate and your fellow church member. And last, um, one of the great cures of mental illness is suffering and love. I, was, I read a book recently by, um, I think it was Rod Dreher, Live Not By Lies. And at the very end of the chapter, he talks, last chapter, he talks about um, like mental illness rising in America and people being really unhappy. And he, he, he so to write the book, he'd gone all through Eastern Europe to talk to these like saints of the communist era who were tortured, thrown in gulags. Um, I mean, just the most inhuman thing you could possibly imagine to them. And they said, they said, there's a part of us, a number of them said this, there's a part of us that would go back willingly. Our time in the gulag was the worst time in our life physically, but it was the happiest time in our life. There's a story about these three men that are put in a cell with a guy who's dying of tuberculosis, and they nurse him for eight months before he dies. And they allow themselves to just let go of all earthly things. It was all, everything had been taken from them. They had nothing. All they had, God had given him a dying man to love. That's it to not give up the faith, to profess faith in the face of his, their torturers, and to love a dying man. That's all they had in the world to do. And they did it. And they said um, it was the happiest they'd ever been. Friends, our unwillingness to love other human beings as persons, sacrificially, and to, and to receive onto ourselves the disdain, the hatred, and the many sufferings of Christ, we do it because we think it's our only hope to be happy. And it's really one of the only things that assures your unhappiness. Letting everything go, not caring what your car's made of, not caring if you're going like, to go out to the nice restaurant and have enough disposable income, not caring about what people at work are going to think of you, though you're going to love them, though they're going to misunderstand you, that you're going to be publicly a Christian everywhere you go. You're going to accept the derision of Christ and you're going to see it as part of identifying with the suffering so that in somehow you can attain the resurrection from the dead. So that like you are going to be a believer. You're not going to be devoured by worldliness and you are going to receive the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That is how Jesus makes us happy. He, it's not going to happen by believing in Jesus, coming to church, and then chasing the world. It's never going to happen that way. And I think these dying 80-year-old Christians in Europe who suffered in the gulags have, are, are whispering to us a secret that we don't want to believe. And it's a wonder how loving others cures things in us and how suffering can be an incredible road of pleasure. Let's pray. Father, I— I pray that you'd help us as believers to so walk in these areas.
um, that we would be to sufferers and ourselves as Christ was as your suffering servant. That we would, we would not look on your sufferers as men and women we think are afflicted by God. But we would see them as um, the broken object of your love that we have the unspeakable opportunity of caring for and to living sacrificially for and to invite into our lives and to bear their burdens with them. And I, pr- I pray that you would persuade us that you care about our afflictions and our infirmities and that you would so persuade us that not only would we grow to not hate ourselves, but that we would grow to see other people as people instead of objects and ends for ourselves. And that we would make it both our vocation and our avocation, both our work and our pleasure, to love those who are stricken. Whether they lay in the bed with us at night and we are just insensitive to what they carry, or whether they are our neighbor or connected to us in the church or in whatever way. God, we pray that you would, um, even if you don't heal our metabolical processes that are broken under the curse, we pray that you would at least heal our worldliness, our environmental brokenness, because we accept things we shouldn't, the sin we choose and exacerbate and what overwhelms us because we choose to be weak because we don't want to be your substantive people. I pray that through that you would heal us. But I pray that even in the midst of our healing that we would be persevering lovers in Jesus' name.